HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Just one year ago, we broadcast our first podcast. So, happy first anniversary to Let's Talk About Food, and a huge thank you to you and to Heritage Radio Network. What a year it's been. And as our first anniversary gift to ourselves, and hopefully to you, we are rebroadcasting our very first podcast episode. We hope you enjoy it. Lydia Shire is simply one of the country's leading chefs, named to every high honor in the culinary world, including becoming the first female executive chef at a Four Seasons Hotel. She'll share her story about just how far a chef may have to go to get a recipe. Lydia was recorded in front of a live audience at WBUR's City Space in Boston in November of 2020. Let's have a listen. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? So I love to cook. I was always cooking. That was my entertainment when I had three children. That's what I would do. That would, you know, make me happy every day. And so my husband worked for a theater company, and I was cooking dinner for his secretary and her husband, Bob. So anyway, I was at the supermarket. We had a babysitter for the three children, and I'm going up and down the aisles in the supermarket with my husband. I'm thinking about this dinner I'm cooking the next night. And my husband said, Lydia, I have something to tell you. And I said, what? And he said to me, well, I'm leaving you. I'm in love with Jenny, his secretary. And just so you know, I have never loved you. So I looked at him and I said, oh, does that mean dinner's off? (laughs) And, And that is the truth, because... 
It was, so I had to go and put everything back in the, you know, it was a crazy night. And that night, he moved down to the couch, and that was it. And I moved to my mother's house, and I got a job at Paul's Mall, the jazz workshop, and I became a cocktail waitress at night. And I decided I wanted to work in a restaurant. So Maison Robert was opening, and I said, all right, I'm going to nail this job no matter what it takes. You know, because I had no restaurant experience. So I had a book, and it had a recipe for a seven-layer, very thin-layer cake with buttercream frosting, a real French buttercream frosting. So I thought I would go to my interview with a cake. (laughs) And it was in the summer, and this was in 1971, and I had to order an air-conditioned cab, and believe it or not, back then there were some, but not all. So I did, I ordered an air-conditioned cab, But of course, when I made the buttercream, it curdled. I don't know who's made buttercream here before, but it's a tricky animal. And I curdled it, and I wasn't knowledgeable enough to put it back together again, so I had to make the whole thing over again. Of course, now I know how to put it back together. (laughs) So I made it there. The cake was beautiful. I walked into Maison Robert and handed it to Roger Martel, who is from Marseille in France. And... He just looked at me and he said, yeah, you have the job. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, I think think that should be a good lesson for many people. I think you have to stand out in some way. So anyway, I went to Maison Robert. It's then that I met Julia Child. I rose through the ranks and I became the chef of the fancy dining room. And Julia, she suggested that I go to the Harvest restaurant and be the chef. So she got me a job there. And um, I spent nine months there, and I failed. It was the first job that I ever failed. And that was because I let two cooks there get at me. They would make fun of me every day. They would say bad things. It was awful. And one day, I had had it, and I got in my boyfriend's car, and I said, I can't go back in there. I have to leave. I quit that day. But what happened is I found a new voice in myself, and to this day, it's not a problem. I simply tell people in a nice way if there's an issue, and um, (laughs) we go on. But I suppose my message in this is that It's okay to fail. I mean, I surely did, but I kind of rose above that. Biba was my first restaurant that I had ever opened. And I think we had the first true bar food menu. And I wanted to make scallion pancakes because there was this little dive restaurant in Boston, in Chinatown, and they made the best scallion pancakes. So my Chinese friend made an appointment for me to visit the chef who was from northern China to get the recipe. So I arrived at 12, and my girlfriend wasn't there. So I knocked on the door, and he let me in. 
And, you know, of course, I was just smiling because I couldn't converse with him. And right away, he came over to me and he started putting his hands on me and trying to kiss me. And, you know, I keep looking out the door to see if Bick has arrived, you know, because I don't know what to do. This guy is pawing me. So I say to myself, I have to make a decision. Do I want the recipe? <laughs> or do I care if he feels me up? So I said, okay, I don't care. I want the recipe. <laughs> so he was, you know, feeling me up, kissing me, smothering me. And I'm just standing there waiting for Big to come. Finally, she came, so I was saved, but just barely. Um, so I can honestly say I love what I do, and I'm very fortunate that my youngest son, Alex, you know, he's in the restaurant business. He is the co-chef at Scampo. He's an amazing cook. And I just look forward to many years cooking, and especially cooking with him. This has been very fun. And uh, thank you for listening. Will Gilson is one of Boston's most beloved chefs. He's the owner of several popular restaurants and skilled at making people fall in love with his food. He will share his story about how risotto can lead to love. Will was recorded at City Winery in Boston in February of 2020. Let's have a listen. When I was 16, this is like the chef origin story that all of us have before you become a sort of tattooed, uh, bearded version of yourself to become so stereotypical. <laughs> but when I was 16, I fell in love with my career. And I think that I fell in love with my career because I was trying to fill the void of what had just crumbled around me, which was my parents' marriage. And so I was 16, and everybody in my family at that point was like, you should go to Italy with your grandparents. And I thought that was great. I was working in a restaurant in the North End at the time. It sort of seemed on brand, as they say these days. And I get there, unbeknownst to me, knowing that this was a ruse for my parents back home to take their marriage to DEFCON 4. Um, but despite you know, all of that, um, I land in Italy, uh, meet my grandparents there, and get a whirlwind tour of four cities of Italy, from Venice to Bologna to Genoa down to Florence. And as a 16-year-old kid who's never left the country before, this is just mind-blowing to me. I'm being allowed to eat uh, these super sweet croissants called cornettos and this amazing rich hot chocolate that tastes like what I can only assume Augustus Gloop tasted just before he died in the river at Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And this is how I start my day every single day when I'm with my grandparents in Italy. And so I'm, I'm doing this and uh, you know, get a chance to uh, try all these amazing dishes. And the one that really stuck with me the most was risotto. Because growing up in America, rice 
is just like pilaf, you know? Unless you're coming from the south and it's like Hoppin' John or you get some sort of jambalaya, some sort of thing that's got spice to it, you grow up in New England, it's coming out of a box or it's coming out of a bag or it's Uncle Ben's. So I'm having this amazing rice dish and this waiter is explaining the dish to me and he says, you know, to make a perfect risotto, every single grain of rice should taste exactly like a small little ravioli where it bursts in the inside and it's nice and soft. And I was like, whoa. If this olive-skinned man who smells like Marlboro cigarettes can convince me that I really need risotto in my life, imagine if I could harness this power and bring it back to America and charm women. So I come back and I've, I've got my, my, my you know, risotto uh, you know, recipe that I want to try to figure out how to cook when I get home. And I get back and I land at the airport and only one parent's there to pick me up. And they go, by the way, we don't live together anymore, and we're probably going to get a divorce. Which is not quite the welcome home sign from the Terminal E at Logan that you're expecting to get, but that's what we got. And so, you know, teen years are filled with angst regardless. Um, And then you add fuel to the fire, and it becomes kind of chaotic. And one of the things that sort of kept me from spiraling out, I did get arrested once, but we'll talk about that at a different time, <laughs> is that uh, I was working at this restaurant in the North End. Uh, it was called Marcuccio's. And some of you might know Chuck Draghi, an amazing chef in this town. Uh, Chuck uh, was able to take a kid who was spiraling out and kind of lost and help redirect that focus. And so during that time that I was there, I would take the train in one day a week, and uh, I would come into the city and I would learn from him. And I wanted to figure out a way to learn how to master this dish. And so every week that I was in there, I would tell him this. I'd be like, I want to learn how to make risotto because I really want to impress girls. And he said, you know, that's the same reason why I got into cooking. And I was like, cool, bro. Like, we got this. But, you know, Marcuccio's was a very interesting restaurant, and and it was a restaurant that was uh, in the North End. The owner was uh, a mafia guy who uh, had a couple of his buddies killed in the restaurant. And so the ground where basically there was once a chalk outline became the place where now a sort of angsty, mad teenage kid was learning how to cook. So it's a great setup right there. And we could go into this for much longer, but then you'll start charging me like my therapist does, so I don't think that that works. (laughs) So once I started to try to taste Chuck's risotto and I wanted to learn how to make his risotto, I was like, okay, I think I'm starting to get this. And I would then try to become a one-trick pony for the next 15 years of my dating life of trying to cook risotto for any girl that I could convince that this was a really romantic, awesome dish because it would take 45 minutes and you needed patience, passion, and you had to stir. So I just kept on trying this over and over and over again. And, you know, my first risotto that I made was awkward. I I had some risottos where, um, you know, mom came home and interrupted the risotto. Uh, I had risottos where uh, someone else had eaten a lot of risottos and I hadn't made a lot of risottos, so I was like really concerned that I wasn't really getting, you know, the steps right there. My 20s, there was a lot of risotto. And risotto was good. Some risotto was bad. Sometimes risotto was with one person in the morning and with a different person at night. But, you know, as those things kind of tend to go, I found myself in a situation where I just kept on trying to kind of, I don't know, stick with just one thing that I knew how to do. And I I realized that I wasn't getting anywhere with that. And I think I finally got to a point where I realized it was time to kind of shake off the person who wanted to cook 
the best risotto and just keep on doing that same trick over again. And it was time to try something different. And sort of coinciding with around the same time of opening up you know, the restaurant that we have today, um, I was ready to kind of hang it up. And I was ready to go back to my first love, which was the career that I wanted to pursue that had sort of taken the chaos of life and redirected it into something normal. And just when I was getting ready to maybe have my memoir read Risotto for One for Life, <laughs> I ended up meeting someone who was very interesting. And this person uh, came into the restaurant and she was sitting at my bar and I spent a good time busying myself behind the bar trying to pretend like I was, you know, just adjusting the volume of the stereo of the restaurant. And, uh, and I turned around, I looked at her and I smiled and, uh, and she left. And I was like, well, back, back to work, back to work. She came back later on with friends that I had gone to high school with, and uh, they were said, oh, this is, this is our friend, and, and uh, we also know him, and it's like, you guys should hang out. I said, oh, great. And I said, how do you feel about risotto? <laughs> and she said, I'm more of a tasting menu girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, you know, you can have all the practice, you can have all of the failed attempts, you can have all these things, but... That woman's now my wife, mother, my daughter, and it's really nice to have a full plate. Thank you. So that was our first episode, and after a minute, we'll come back with our second episode, which is also very fun. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. This episode features our friend Annie Cops, chef, author, and cooking teacher. Annie shares her woeful but very funny tale about Singles Awareness Day. Her story is recorded in front of a live audience at City Winery in Boston, February of 2020. Let's have a listen. I have spent most of my life as a single person. What's that? It's good? Okay, thank you. And I'm mostly okay with that. Those of you who are coupled, I think you're mostly okay with, with your situation. It's sort of Valentine's Day time of year, right? And that's really a, a couple's thing, isn't it? And I have had some nice Valentine's Day where I've been part of a couple and gone to a fancy restaurant and had a fantastic meal, you know, and 
really enjoyed myself and, and I've been loved by some great men and I don't know if I've actually really fallen in love, but I've loved some, some nice men. But Valentine's Day is a, is a tough one sometimes for single people and I've had some good Valentine's Day as a single person, but I've had some, some clunker Valentine's Days um, as a single person. And there was one that was particularly bad. It was a Valentine's Day about 20 years ago, and Valentine's Day fell on a Saturday night. And technically, it wasn't the Valentine's Day that was so bad. I made the very big mistake of um, making plans for brunch the next day. <laughs> and I arrived early which was a mistake, and I learned not to be early since that day. So I got there early. I knew the waitstaff pretty well, but I sat at the bar waiting for my friends to arrive, and I was chatting with the waitstaff, whom I knew pretty well, and I was observing the room, as one does when they're early and waiting for their friends, and I looked around. There was a post-coital fog <laughs> on the Sunday after uh, St. Valentine's Day. Every person that came into that restaurant had just rolled out of bed and like they had bed head and they were just like you know why would they have jumped out of bed they, they, they could spend another 20 minutes with the person that they had been making love to all night like another session in before their brunch plans and so like the, the room even had that sort of truffly odor to it you know, what I mean? you know what I'm talking about why we love truffles so much and I knew it so my friends arrived and we had a great brunch Maybe you remember the Make Your Own Bloody Mary bar? I put that thing to work. I thought that, you know, some Bloody Marys and waffles would help. It didn't. This one really, like, it stained my psyche, and I had that endless loop, something's wrong with you, you don't know how to love, you're so deeply flawed. And it doesn't happen to me very often, but for a couple weeks after that horrible brunch at the East Coast Grill, which, by the way, was not the East Coast Grill's fault. I said never again. I'm never going to let that happen to me ever again. And that, that year, I actually was dating somebody, and it didn't work out. He went to his high school reunion and met his high school sweetheart, and they're happily married with kids. So <laughs> Valentine's Day, the Harbingers started to show up. It was almost a year later. The hearts, the send red roses on NPR to raise money, and Feline's had all kinds of sexy lingerie, and, you know, it was not to be ignored. Valentine's Day was going to come, and I wasn't going to let it happen to me again. I wasn't certainly going to brunch, but I decided that I was going to celebrate Valentine's Day, even though I was single. So I found all my close single friends, and I decided I'm going to cook dinner for them. I'm going to celebrate love in a different way. So I planned this great meal, and I decorated my house. I got red and pink and white construction paper and printed paper and I made little hearts and big hearts and I tied white string and I stuck them to the ceiling with scotch tape so that when you walked through the long foyer of that apartment you had to go through this tunnel of hanging hearts. The dinner I had oysters with the beautiful mignonette sauce and I made a special cocktail called the SAD. The, that's the acronym for Singles Awareness Day. <laughs> SAD. Yeah. So I made the SAD cocktail. It had pomegranate and ginger liqueur ginger simple syrup and um, some cranberry juice. It was great. The um, entree, I went kind of old school. Um, Ribeyes, caramelized onions. I thinly sliced the onions and low and slow on those onions. They were delicious. I made roasty potatoes, crunchy, beautifully crispy on one side. Got the Gruyere cheese and got the next layer of potatoes, crunchy on the second side. Roasted wild mushrooms, truffle oil, the real stuff. 
Not that petroleum, right? This was the expensive stuff. The steaks may or may not have been overcooked um, because the sad cocktail I was telling you about. It wasn't so much that I was drinking them during, but I was, to get the proportions right before my guests arrived, I did, on an empty stomach, have a few too many sads. So the steaks, some were, most were overcooked, but that, that, was, that was forgiven. But I cooked a meal for my friends whom I love. I made red velvet cake cupcakes for dessert with the buttercream and red, white, and, and pink heart-shaped sprinkles on top of them. And it was a beautiful meal. And I kept up this for a few years. We did this Singles Awareness Day, the sad <laughs> dinner. And I started traveling a lot, and you know, people got married or they moved away, and it was harder and harder to carry on the, the tradition. But what I did learn is that the act of buying food and planning a meal and cooking and serving people you care about is a very nurturing and loving thing to do. And it can be amorous, it can be platonic, it can be maternal, it can be brotherly or sisterly. It, but it's a, it's, a, it's a gift that I was able to give to myself and to my friends. And I know that I know how to love and I know that I am loved. And I also know that I know how to cook. And Singles Awareness Day does come out as sad, but there's nothing sad about being single. So thank you. Thank you, Louisa. Jasper White is credited nationally with reviving and reinventing the regional traditions of New England cooking. An uber-successful chef with multiple restaurants, winner of every accolade in the food world, Jasper will share a deeply personal story of how a cranky customer became a treasured friend. Jasper's story is recorded in front of a live audience at WBUR City Space in November of 2019. Let's have a listen. This is an outrage. How could you do this to me? How could you take my favorite dish off the menu? What am I going to do now? That was 1980, and uh, I had moved to Boston the year before and was uh, manager at the Harvard Bookstore Cafe on Newberry Street. The irate customer was a guy named Andy Mose. I don't know if any of you remember Andy. And the dish was a dish that I learned from Lydia the year before we worked at the Copley Plaza Hotel together. And it was a liver mousse that was flavored with caramelized onions, apples, butter, herbs, and cognac. Right, Yeah. Delicious dish. Andy really loved it. He was freaking out. I, could, I, I tried to calm him down. I didn't really know him at the time, but I'd seen him in the cafe a few times. You know, when a dish doesn't sell, you can't present it at its best quality. And so it has to come off the menu. But I'm going to make it as a special once in a while. And if you give me your phone number, I'll call you up when we have it. Well, all week long, I thought about this guy's big belly, big beard, big, beautiful face with a smile that just reeked of mischievousness. And uh, I thought about him. And I, and I went in, made an order. Anyway, I made a 10-pound batch of the liver mousse. I packaged it. I called up Andy. I asked him where he lived. He happened to be a neighbor. Long story short, 
we became best friends. We had a lot in common. We loved food. We loved drinking. We loved Beavis Bar. And um, it was a great friendship. And at the same time, over the next few years, our careers paralleled. Andy, he went from being the traffic reporter to the co-host of the Joe and Andy show on ROR. It was one of the highest rating uh, morning shows for more than a dozen years. And I got back with Lydia. We worked at Parker's. We opened the Bostonian Hotel. Then I opened Jasper's. Lydia and I were, like, becoming famous for new American cuisine. And when I got to Jasper's, I started focusing more on New England. And that led to a feature article in the New York Times with Craig Claiborne about Thanksgiving. And Andy called me up, uh, and he said, uh, Jasper, he said, I saw the article. That was great. Uh, why don't you come on the show and talk about it? And I said, yeah, okay. So I knew, being Andy, that it wasn't going to be really a serious food talk. <laughs> the next morning on the show, his partner, Joe Martel, says, so Andy, where are you going to have Thanksgiving this year? And he said, well, I've got a bit of a dilemma. I'm supposed to go to my sister's in Connecticut with, with the whole family, but I just got an invitation from Jasper White to have dinner at his house. <laughs> <coughs> And Joe said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. Let me call my sister. And this is all on air. So he calls his sister Marla up, who was part of the spook. And he said, so Marla, uh, how you doing? Oh, Andy, I'm so happy to hear from you. I hope you're going to be here for Thanksgiving. He said, well, I'm not sure yet. I might have to work. What are you having for dinner? She said, oh, it's going to be wonderful, Andy. I'm making these little skewers of Spam and pineapple. Um, I'm making a five-cup salad. It's a cup of marshmallows, a cup of coconut, a cup of canned mandarin oranges, fruit cocktail, and imitation sour cream. And then, and then instead of the regular turkey, I'm going to bake a turkey roll. It's almost all white meat, and it's so easy to slice. And he's like, oh, great, sis. Uh, I'll get back to you. And he calls me up. Uh, Hi, Jasper. What are you doing for Thanksgiving this year? Like, what's on the menu? So I said, well, we're going to start with pemmican oysters from Maine. I'm going, to bro I'm going to broil some little neck clams and put garlic butter on it. A few other tasty appetizers. Then we're going to have a rich lobster bisque with tamale toast. Then we're going to have uh, my version of Fanny Farmer's butter-based turkey and sausage, apple, and sage stuffing, cranberry ginger relish. I'm going to roast a piece of venison, Grand Veneur, with chestnut puree, and uh, Brussels sprouts with bacon, and sautéed chanterelles, and on and on and on. Next call to Marla. Marla, I just found out I had to work. Oh, I'm sorry, Andy. We're really going to miss you. So... Most of the people that knew the show knew that he was a joker, but not everybody who heard it didn't. So the people started calling in, and they were irate. <laughs> what, a, what a despicable human being. Uh, you know nothing about the meaning of Thanksgiving and family. One person even called him the Ebenezer Scrooge of Thanksgiving. Well, the truth is that Andy did work that Thanksgiving. He worked almost every Thanksgiving and Christmas because he wanted his co-workers who had children 
to uh, be able to enjoy it with their families. He had a big heart, and he was, he was a great guy. And he did come to my house. I postponed the dinner till 4 o'clock so that he would come. And we shared many holidays together. And now I'm going to fast forward another 10 years. It's the year 2000. I had just opened Summer Shack six months earlier. And Andy said, come on the show, we'll do a little... He was a shameless promoter of his friends, as Lydia could tell you, and, and any other chefs who knew Andy. In return, he would get free meals. But <laughs> it was basically a one-hour infomercial about Summer Shack. <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing the show with him. He went home that day and took a nap, and he died of a heart attack. Um, it was so sad. It was so upsetting, and especially for his wife, Diane, who's here tonight with us. And... For me, it was, you know, I lost one of my best buddies, and it was so weird being on his last show. So I think of him often, and especially at Thanksgiving. Thanks, and I hope you guys have a good dinner this year. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 